Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Lay. Hey, Kim. How are you? I'm doing okay. I I had a rough week in the real world last week, I have to admit. I have a very deadline-driven career, and I had really big deadlines due on Friday. It was really hard to actually do a lot of self-care last week. Luckily, Mm. I have a a spouse who was willing to make all of our meals for us, so he did take really good care of us, although he didn't do any dishes. And (laughs) so I have a sink full of dishes to, to catch up on. But it was interesting being in a space where I wasn't really able to take care of myself and my family the way I'm accustomed to doing. Deadlines have been reached successfully, so I can uh, clean up my kitchen and look forward to moving on with all the other things I have to do. How are you? You know, I'm doing pretty good talking about taking care of family. I'm actually in Arizona visiting my family. My mom is in the last stages of kidney failure, so my brother and I hopped on a plane to help out with the end-of-life preparations and to support my dad and my sister. You know, it's, it's one of those hard parts of life, but it's still a part of life. Yeah. And one of the things that I found really interesting is last week, we talked about the symbolism of eggs, cycle of life, life after death, and the resurrection of Christ for Easter, Mm -hmm. which is especially important to my mom. And um, in a way, it's helped me to be a little bit more present and thoughtful through this whole experience with my mom. Because both houses, my mom's house and my sister's house, are decorated for Easter. And those symbols are all around me. Wow. So, yeah. At a really potent time for your family. Yes. You're yeah. anticipating a major change. Exactly. So, But, yeah, we're, we're doing good. We're getting through all the steps and um, being together as a family, which has been really, really important for us. Good. I'm glad you're able to be together and prepare for what comes next for all of you. Yeah. Yeah, it's been it's been good. So last week we promised people to talk about what's in our pantry. Indeed we did. I, I went to my pantry honestly a couple of times. I opened the door and I looked and I closed it and I opened the door and, and what struck me about the third time I opened it because you know, I don't know why I expected it to change. <laughs> well, it's like the refrigerator, right? We when you're right. like you're a teenager, you keep opening it thinking somehow it's gonna be magically different, exactly. like a portal to Narnia. Yes, exactly like that. (laughs) But there was no portal. But what there was, was a lot of vinegars. Oh. And the thing that struck me about those vinegars is that they were from all corners of the world. Interesting. Yeah. And last week in our egg episode, I mentioned that birds are found on every continent. And that helped explain how the symbolism of the egg crossed so many cultures. And I found it super interesting that the item that I chose from my pantry was also super universal. Yeah, I imagine. I actually hadn't thought a lot about vinegar before. I'm really eager to hear what you've learned. And just as an aside, because I am in Arizona, the birds are singing and Mm -hmm. the wind chimes are chiming. So if you hear those in the background, enjoy. enjoy. You're welcome. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) 
So um, the New World Encyclopedia defines vinegar as a sour liquid produced from the fermentation of diluted alcohol products, which yields the organic compound acidic acid, its key ingredient. And I feel like with most definitions, this is a super oversimplified (laughs) definition. So in his book, Vinegar, the user-friendly standard text reference and guide to appreciating, making, and enjoying vinegar. We always seem to choose these <laughs> fabulous books that have the long, longest titles. Right? Lawrence J. Diggs makes this comment. And I think that this is much more interesting than the definition from the New World Encyclopedia. Think for a moment. What other substance can you name that can be found on the shelves of kitchens all over the world in small villages as well as large cities? What else can be used almost irrespective of culture or religious belief as food, medicine, beauty aid, cleaner, and preservative? And Mm. finally, what other substance with all its uses, complexities, and varieties can be simply, safely, economically made at home. I know of none except vinegar. Mm. Vinegar was likely a result of winemaking gone bad. The word itself is Old French, meaning sour wine. Uh, And the thing that's fascinating to me, although they can't trace the origins of the first vinegar that was made, is that this product that essentially made something that was supposed to be consumable as a drink, non-consumable as a drink. Mm -hmm. And yet it has influenced how we cook across so many cultures. Vinegar itself has actually been around since the 5th century BC. There are written records of Babylonians using date vinegar as a preservative and a condiment. As we have said in so many of other episodes, we're going to have to dig deeper into this because there is so, so much about vinegar. But there are some food facts that demonstrate just how long we've known vinegar and how it has influenced us. So I'm going to go through a couple of things here, and then I'll talk a little bit about the types of vinegars, the uses of vinegars. In 400 BCE, Hippocrates prescribed vinegar as a curative as well as a preventative. 3,000 years ago, Helen of Troy bathed in vinegar daily to preserve her beauty. You couldn't have any open sores, that's for sure. (laughs) This reminds me of, in our aphrodisiac episode, we had the courtier who would bathe in strawberry juice. Yes. I'm thinking sliced strawberries and balsamic vinegar. Together, they would have been pretty rad. But I'm just trying to think of like the idea of walking around smelling like vinegar. But it would keep your skin clear. I would imagine that there were a lot of other things that smelled worse. (laughs) That's probably true. (laughs) This is such an interesting fact. When Hannibal was marching over the Alps to attack Italy, he used elephants. And some of these paths over the Alps, the the elephants couldn't pass. So the soldiers would cover these big boulders with wood that was really high in pitch. They'd set them on fire and then they would pour barrels of vinegar over the fire and the boulders. It it created this explosive effect and it cracked the boulders (laughs) enough that the soldiers could start pickaxing at them and and getting rid of those boulders so that the elephants could pass through the Alps. 
So if it wasn't for, for vinegar. vinegar, then Hannibal couldn't have attacked Italy. I don't I don't know if that's it's probably not a good thing for Italy, but well now I'm wondering. I this is a question that probably has no answer, and I'm super sorry, or no answer at this moment. Well, how did vinegar get to Italy? Because you think of a nice caprese salad with a tasty little bit of balsamic. Well, another fun food fact. Balsamic vinegar was created for the upper classes. It wasn't meant for the lower classes. Mm -hmm. But when Napoleon invaded Italy, as invaders do, Mm -hmm. they plunder. And they plundered the castles and palaces and took those balsamic vinegar barrels with them. So thank you, Napoleon, for introducing balsamic vinegar to the world. Yay, Napoleon. (laughs) The only time anyone will ever say that. And then we're over to China. Okay. So Chinese vinegar culture is rich and varied. Shangzi is one of the most important regions which has been producing this Shangzi vinegar for over 2,000 years. And legend has it that when a father was looking for a suitable man to marry his daughter, not only would he look and consider the family history and finances, they would require the young man to have a large urn of Shangxi vinegar. Would the urn be then used in the household economy or was it more of a status symbol or? Yeah. So it would be used in the household economy. It would also be used to continue producing the vinegar. And this is a fun one. During the prohibition, vinegar companies were excluded from not being able to purchase alcohol because they needed that ingredient to make the vinegar. And of course, the loopholes were exploited. Bootleggers set up vinegar companies and sold the alcohol in the black market. And as one would expect, regulations were born out of this oversight. Alcohol being sold to the companies actually had to be mixed with 5% ethyl acetate, which is fine for vinegar making, but not so good for wine consumption. (laughs) I have no idea what that tastes like, but I imagine it's not good. It doesn't sound good. Drinking, yeah, no. We don't think of acetate as being something that you would consume. No. Another thing that I thought was really interesting, vinegar crosses so many religious lines. It's from a fermented product, but vinegar is considered halal, which means that it's allowed in the Muslim culture as long as the process is natural and spontaneous and not artificially manufactured, which is what we see in most of our vinegars that we get today. I thought that was really interesting. That is really interesting. And of course, hearkening back to our Nuru's episode, it's one of the S's on the half scene table representing age and wisdom. Yes, because it had to do with patience, which totally makes sense now when you think about it, because if it is spontaneous and natural, it does take time for Mm -hmm. that process to happen. A couple of months even before the alcohol is turned into vinegar. There are so many types of vinegar, but I just wanted to run through a couple. Apple cider vinegar, which is made from cider or apple musk. And this one is the one that plays a significant role in folk remedies. There are Mm -hmm. so many folk remedies around apple cider vinegar. There's balsamic, which is made from white grapes, which you would not think because of the color of the balsamic, but it is made from white grapes, Trebbiano, mostly. It's slowly aged in wooden casks. And like I had mentioned, it was originally the artisanal product that was meant for only the Italian upper class. Malt vinegar, which is made from germinated grain that's used to make ales. It's typically used for pickling, especially pickled walnuts. Very, very English. And I think what we most likely think of when we think of malt vinegar is fish and chips. Yep. Pub foods. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Rice vinegar, which is most popular in East and Southeast Asian cuisines, it's aged filtered rice wine, which is sake. It's used in stir fries, quick pickles, over salads, and of course, in sushi. Because this one tends to be the most mild of the vinegars. So when you mix it in with the sushi rice, you don't get that overpowering hit of acidicness. Wine vinegars, those are most typically associated with the Mediterranean countries in Central Europe. And there's a wide range of qualities of these vinegars. Some of them are aged in wood for several years. These are less acidic than the white or cider vinegars. Red wines are typically used in dressings, sauces, pickling, slow cooking. And white wine is used to bring out the sweetness in fruits, especially strawberries and melons. And then there's all of these specialty vinegars. Coconut vinegars, cane Fruit, raisin, date, honey, beer. That one I found very interesting. It's actually called aliger. So where (laughs) vinegar is wine, sour wine, aliger is soured beer. Okay. Kombucha vinegar, so made out of kombucha, and all of these flavored vinegars. When you put the herbs in, the flowers in, garlic, you can make any kind of a flavored vinegar. Right. And the culinary uses are just as varied. You can pickle with it. You can preserve with it. Vinaigrettes, salad dressings. It's used as a major component in a lot of condiments. Mustard, ketchup, mayonnaise, chutneys, marinades. You can make pan sauces, dipping sauces. In a pie crust or as a main ingredient for a pie, vinegar pie, which I think we're going to have to talk about. Yes. Yes. We're going to have to talk about vinegar pie. I I must know more about this food. (laughs) It is a desperation pie and there are a lot of them. So I think we have to do an episode on desperation pies. Absolutely. The antithesis of the egg episode, actually. (laughs) Because there's so many, there are so many desperation things that are like no egg, chocolate cakes, depression cakes, and and all manner of things that what can I do without this component ingredient? Yeah. And again, to that point, this is an ingredient that is virtually on everybody's shelf in every size of town in every country. So it was readily available. And then you get into the medicinal uses. As I mentioned earlier, Hippocrates, he was the Greek physician who practiced until 370 BCE, prescribed vinegar for things like skin rashes and ear infections. And they're still used for those two things. There are so many folk remedies and treatments that utilize vinegar, like clearing up coughs, easing asthma, stopping hiccups, helping heartburn. Here are some specific receipts that I found particularly interesting slash fun. Ye may purify the waters of the body by sipping a tonic of goodly vinegar mixed with clear running water. So if you need to uh, purify the waters of your body, this is what you can do. Make the suffering of one who speweth up the food less grievous by covering the belly with a washcloth well soaked in warm vinegar. Hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know why... On the belly, it would make you not spewith up your food. So I'm wondering whether there's some sort of sense of like the skin reacting mm. to a vinegar soaked cloth right. would distract you from nausea and so that you wouldn't spewith. Right. <laughs> All this is conjecture. We actually need a physician to, or do we? Because uh, these are home folk remedies. These are folk remedies. So, yep. you know, be, I'm curious. And the last one that I want to share is those who sup regularly of the miraculous vinegar will be blessed with a sharp mind for all their lives. Yes. All right. I'm going to go guzzle some vinegar. But don't guzzle. Okay. 
Don't guzzle. There are specific ratios that you need to follow. Otherwise, it will upset your stomach a lot. So, so true. So talking about folk remedies, this is something that my in-law family uses, vinegar, especially with colds. Back to that idea of clearing nasal passages Mm -hmm. and such. I was visiting my in-laws many years ago. My sister-in-law had a cold. And so she was trying to take care of the cold. I tried years after that, remembering that they were using this as a remedy for a chest cold, and my husband had one. I tried to mix up a thing for him, but I didn't know the ratios. And so I over vinegared him, and he spewedeth. Poor guy. I felt so, so oh. bad. Vinegars and drinks can be super tasty. And I'm thinking about shrubs. And a coworker had huge tree, Italian palm tree in his yard. And so he had way more fruit than he could deal with. So he sent some home with me and I made a plum shrub, which is for those who don't know, because I didn't until I made one. You macerate stone fruit in a sugar mixture. It draws the the fruit liquid out, drain off the liquid from the sugar fruit base. And then you mix that an equal part with a complementary vinegar. And then you cut that again with your favorite alcohol or sparkling water. It's not a sweet soda. If you pick the right vinegar, it will enhance the fruit flavor. Like you were saying with the white vinegar, you know, clarifies the taste of fruit. So I did an Italian plum and red wine vinegar mixed with a coffee liqueur. It was really good. Yeah, I'm a big fan of shrubs. I feel like I've not taken advantage of vinegar as much as I could because I know you could add a drizzle to things that just like really help pop flavors. The other thing that that you can use vinegars for are household uses. You see this in a lot of the older cookbooks. Typically, they will have at the very last part of it, how to use vinegar for household things. You can use it from anything from cleaning drains, brightening your laundry, cleaning pewter, washing windows, cleaning mineral buildup on metal. And here are a couple that I thought were really fun and very interesting. Use vinegar and hay to revitalize iron pans which have rust spots. Fill the pot with hay. Add a quarter of a cup of vinegar and enough water to cover the hay. Boil for one hour. Wipe the rust away. Rhubarb can also be substituted for hay. Wow! Yeah. Or you can do a vinegar rinse that will help stop static cling and reduce the amount of lint that settles on your clothes. Again, folk remedy. I have not tested this, but I'm going to. So that's what I learned about vinegar. There is so much more. I mean, we could talk specifically about balsamic vinegar forever and ever. Cider vinegar forever and ever. What amazing ingredient (laughs) did you dig up out of your pantry? Which rabbit hole did I go down today, did you say? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for today's episode, I resolved that I'd cover the first thing that caught my eye when I opened up my pantry cupboard. You know, kind of like a version of ingredient roulette, if you will. The first thing you put your eye on, because frankly, there's so much that we have in our pantries, any pantry. That is just a really fascinating springboard. Everything's got history to it, from salt to pepper to mustard to vinegar, right? There's a story behind the stuff that we keep in our homes. And so the first thing that really caught my eye when I opened up my pantry was a box of softest silk super cake flour. And I got really excited to talk about it because as we eat is the reason why I have cake flour in my pantry at all. I bought the cake flour because I drew orange raisin cake for recipe box roulette. And I was determined to follow the handwritten recipe to a T. And the recipe called for cake flour. As I recall, that particular recipe card was found in a recipe collection of a West Seattle Order of the Eastern Star, one of the 
collections that you've collected, Leigh. Right. So I'm a very casual baker, no pun intended, because I'm a baker. Yeah. And I've made cakes and cupcakes and bread before, and I've worked with all-purpose flour and self-rising flour, and a tiny bit with yeast. I have coconut flour and almond flour in my pantry due to a couple of rounds of trying out low-carb diets, but I had never used cake flour before. And well, you know me and I got curious. And so I started asking myself, what is the deal with all these types of flour? Things you ask yourself in the middle of the night. Exactly. So at its most basic, flour is the finest product of the process of bolting or grinding meal from cereal grains like wheat, corn, rye, or spelt. Early receipts for flour actually spell it out as flour, F-L-O-W-E-R. Wheat grains or kernels are composed of three basic elements, endosperm, bran, and germ. And to borrow again from our eggs episode, this would be like endosperm being the egg whites, the bran being the egg shell, and the germ being the yolk. So to make flour, cereal grains are ground or milled to separate the endosperm from the other portions in varying degrees. A whole wheat flour is going to contain more of all the components of a wheat grain, whereas white flour, of which cake flour is part, will contain less of that. We know that milling dates to at least 10,000 BCE from the Azilian culture of southern France, where minerals were ground for pigments. Grain was probably ground too, but only to levels sufficient for gruel, certainly not the flour we know today, because frankly, more muscle and endurance was needed. Humans evolved grinding techniques into two veins. One was larger mortars used by two or more people who pounded the grains with a pestle, or a device by which a top stone grinds against a bottom stone and the flour collects in a hollow. But as I said, human-powered grinding can only get you so far. So flour's next major development came when humans harnessed wind and water power to keep stones moving. Water-powered mills, the kind we usually see in bucolic pastoral scenes, were mentioned by Vitruvius in 13 BCE, and this technique spread across Western Europe. Wind power started to be utilized sometime around 10,000 AD. Milling received another technological upgrade with steam power and steel rollers with early efforts dating to the 1820s in Hungary, followed by additional and somewhat final refinement in Switzerland in 1834. Ironically, we get flour faster through steel roller milling, but there are claims that the process itself damages enzymes and creates a product that is effectively inert or lifeless, just not as spunky as if you were to mill it with stone. In the U.S., the flour that we tend to use in baking is actually white flour, which is flour from which bran and germ have been entirely removed and ironically in turn enriched. So there are a lot of different additives that get put into flour. And then white flour itself is classified into several categories based on the hardness of the flour. Red flour is made from blends of hard wheat flour, and that contains about 12 to 14 percent or more of protein. All-purpose flour, made from a blend of hard and soft wheat, has more like a 10 to 12 percent protein ratio. All-purpose flour is readily available. It's a real workhorse. It's probably the flour we most often have in our homes because it can be used for all manner of baking, from really rustic coarse breads to delicate angel food. You get really predictable results from all-purpose flour. Cake flour is made almost entirely of soft wheat, and it's got a really low percentage of protein at about 9%. And it's often bleached by chlorination, and that process allows fat to more easily adhere to the starch for better distribution throughout the dough. 
The protein content of wheat correlates with the formation of gluten, which gives strength and firmness to baked goods. For example, if you're baking like a rustic boule, you want a firm, strong result. So you're going to use a high protein flour like bread flour for that. But who wants to eat tough cake? You'd want less gluten and you would use a softer cake flour for that. And so to me, this is starting to make sense because I like formulas. I like doing things where X plus Y equals Z result. It's like a cool science experiment. Baking has always felt like that for me. It's just a fun science experiment. So true. So true. So to solve for coarse, thick bread, you use a heavier flour. You knead it. You proof it because you're trying to encourage the formation of gluten. But to solve for cake, especially a soft cake like a chiffon cake, which used to be incredibly popular, you use a softer flour. You only mix until the ingredients are combined and you bake it immediately. There's not a whole lot of sitting and letting it sit around because you're trying to avoid having gluten bonds form. I found this quote from Susan Reed on the King Arthur website that I thought was really cool because it's not like we've had this knowledge about gluten bonds and protein ratios. Cooks and bakers in the past probably noticed which flours worked best for certain ingredients. So much of it was instinctive. So this quote from Susan Reed, while man has been grinding flour and baking with it for millennia, on the molecular level, there are a lot of things we really don't know yet. We just know that some things work. Why is still a work in process. And I really appreciate that sentiment quite a bit. And it's something we've talked about yeah. before, too, like the sense that we haven't always had access to the chemistry and the bioscience and the technology that we have today, that a lot of what we have learned over time has been trial and error, which mushrooms are poisonous and which ones aren't, or that certain red berries are sweet. Earlier notes that I had made for our recipe box roulette about cake flour was that it was widely used for heritage cakes and cookies that we finally remember today. But... My reality was that we didn't do a lot of baking in my childhood home. We made bread on occasion, and I have a memory of destroying an LP. I was kneading dough. I was a little kid. My mom gave me some stuff to work with. I didn't wash my hands before I turned over the record, and so I left huge clumps of dough on the side of the record. Oh, no. I've never forgotten that. So it really could have just been that we didn't keep cake flour in the house. I had this assumption that because we didn't have it, therefore it wasn't a very widely utilized thing. But finding cake flour for the orange raisin cake recipe was not difficult. There wasn't a whole lot of brand choice, but it was there in the flour aisle. And especially at a time, too, when folks were buying up a lot of flour in order to make sourdough and everyone was obsessed with making bread early last year during the beginning of the COVID pandemic. The brand choice I did have was Pillsbury Soft as Silk. Now, untangling the history of Soft as Silk proved to be actually challenging so as I said, the box in my pantry says Pillsbury Soft as Silk, but Soft as Silk Super Cake Flour was copyrighted by General Mills circa 1934, probably a little earlier. I found a definitive 1934 copyright. General Mills also in turn created the Betty Crocker brand circa 1936, and I did find a Betty Crocker ad for Soft as Silk that uses this claim, quote, Betty Crocker for super cakes. Betty Crocker decided in 1937 that she needed a flour so fine that it was to be just used for baking the perfect cakes. So Betty introduced soft as silk super cake flour. It was a vital ingredient in Betty's ABCs of cake baking. How a Betty Crocker via General Mills product became a Pillsbury branded product, I actually haven't fully untangled yet. I do know that General Mills acquired Pillsbury's assets in 2001, so it's possible that for name recognition, they shifted the brand from Betty Crocker to Pillsbury. 
but I don't have an answer on that yet. I'm going to be contacting the General Mills librarian to get a little bit more information about this because I'm really curious the shift from Betty Crocker to Pillsbury, when it happened, why it happened. So just to tie this up, a quick note about Pillsbury is that it was formed in 1869 by Charles Alfred Pillsbury and his uncle, John S. Pillsbury. The company was the second in the United States to use steel rollers for processing grain, and they were also hugely responsible for funding railroad development in Minnesota. Pillsbury also began its long-running Pillsbury Bake Off competition in 1949, where they invited home cooks to submit a signature dish made with Pillsbury flowers. In 1950, Lily Wobble of Redwood City, California, won the grand prize of $25,000 with her orange Kiss Me Cake recipe, which is an orange raisin cake. So I'm like excited about this, right? I'm baking a Pillsbury award-winning dish with a flower that originated as a brand with its competitor. There's this weird symbiotic thing going on between this flower, this recipe, and the companies behind it. So on one hand, you've got Pillsbury with this bake-off competition. Its award-winning recipe is this orange raisin cake that became really popular. At the same time, I'm making this cake using flour that was originally branded by General Mills. Now, the thing about Pillsbury and General Mills is that they were competitors in Minnesota. So you've got these companies that are just constantly like kind of head to head. The synergy of this recipe and the flour and the fact that I have the flour is because of this recipe to me was really weird and cool. Of all the flowers I could have used in the recipe, I decided to go the way it was written. Kind of led me to this moment in food history. And in using the cake flour in the orange raisin cake, I realized why you would use cake flour. So by using cake flour, you, you helped make sure that the cake stayed cake and didn't turn into orange raisin bread. And I wouldn't have known that if I had just assumed that I could go ahead and use all-purpose flour. I wouldn't have seen that different outcome. I wouldn't have noticed the fact that cake flour gave me cake. So did Marie Antoinette really say, let them eat cake? Or did she say, let them eat quick bread? <laughs> did she really say it at all? Yeah. <laughs> she, she didn't. <laughs> I don't believe she, she did. didn't. Yeah. Spoiler. She right, didn't. Spoiler. So my last note here is, by the way, for home cooks that may not know, because I didn't know until I started playing with cake flour, substituting cake and all-purpose flour is not a one-to-one -one ratio. You can't just say use two cups of cake flour to two cups of all-purpose flour. And that in itself, I think, is an interesting thing. So if you don't have cake flour and you can't find it or you don't want to get it, but you want to make cakes and lighter cakes, I would recommend using one cup a minus two tablespoons of all-purpose flour sifted with two tablespoons of cornstarch as a substitution for each cup of cake flour. So there you have it. That's what's in my pantry. All right. So are you going to make a cake, do you think, with your softest silk cake flour? I actually have made the cake with the softest silk cake flour, and it's a delicious cake. It's perfect with a cup of coffee. For me, it evoked things that I've read in books about folks gathering together for a cup of coffee and a little slice of cake. It is a company cake. It's perfect. It keeps yeah. well. It's delicious. The orange is really bright and cheerful. The raisins are nice and sweet. And so I keep cake flour in the house now specifically for finer baked goods, the things that I do want to be light and airy. I was thinking that it would be a lot of fun to get into the backstory behind Pillsbury, General Mills, and Betty Crocker. 
between these three brands, some of whom are subsidiaries of each other, I would estimate that about 90% of the branded foods that we have in our cupboards at home come from one of these three companies. General Mills, with its acquisition of Pillsbury, has a tremendous reach into its sub-brands. And I think we should talk about the history of mills and milling in the United States, how it really affected how and what we eat, and how these companies have grown and developed. I think that sounds like a really interesting episode. I think that everybody here in the States, at any rate, is pretty familiar with all three of those, and especially Betty Crocker. Betty Crocker has such an amazing history and lore around that brand specifically. So yeah, let's let's do it. Let's do it next week. Okay, cool. All right. All right. So I'm going to go make a cake, I guess. Why why not? I got the cake flour. I think I am going to dye Easter eggs. Another (gasps) thing that I didn't mention that you can use vinegar for. I hope you have a good time with your family, Leigh. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please. And one more thing. We'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates. Oh, and one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it. You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously. Obviously.